Okay, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. As usual, our friend and producer, Hugo Lundgren, is with us today. It is Today is Monday, November 29th. This is going to run on the 30th. So, Hugo, how was your Thanksgiving? My Thanksgiving, you know, it was very nice, very small, modest, um, but we had a great turkey dinner like everybody else. What about, did you have turkey? Same we kind of thing. We, we did. We've discussed this in detail. Uh, we ended up going to my, my <laughs> parents. My mom made a, a turkey and everything else that was quite good. Um, and then we went upstate and, and hung out for a few days. Did you feel thankful? Do I feel thankful? I, so I try to practice a form of gratitude every day anyway. There's a lot of science that shows that people who kind of are actively grateful and reflect on that um, tend to be happier and, and better adjusted and everything else. Um, I do it in the form of prayer every day, um, seven days a week. So I think it's different for everyone. But but I guess, you know, I often feel this way on these big days like Thanksgiving or Yom Kippur where it's like, okay, you're supposed to sum up all the things you did wrong or right or thankful for. I'm kind of like, I try to do that every single day. Um, so the, the, the big days don't quite have as much significance to me. Although I will say this. I did send the, the famous uh, political consultant text chain. that we Oh, talk yeah, about. we talk about that all the time. I did say, send early that morning, I am thankful for Biden because— Joe Biden. Yeah, because okay. you know what? You, your voice made some kind e- of weird even, no, thing no, there. So oh, I, really? I, no, no. <laughs> e- even with all the problems he's having, even with the shitty poll numbers, even with everything else, he is not Donald Trump. It is so much better than it was uh, a year ago or whenever Trump was in office, that is Biden as successful we might want? Maybe, maybe not. Can we disagree about things like the Afghan pullout? Sure. But o- overall, you know, it's just thinking like one thing in my life that, and all of our lives that really sucked like a year ago and it's better now, it's that. You know, I think that's a really good point. And I wish that was actually, I, I feel like I, I would have liked to have heard more about that. Like, because uh, it is true as a, as a basic sort of feature of our lives that the president isn't this complete embarrassing jerk who's nasty to all sorts of people all the time. And like it just having like a decent, competent, you know, intelligent human being in charge of the country. It, it is something that, like, we shouldn't take it for granted. Yeah, I mean, we took it for granted until Trump, and, and now we're, we're taking it for granted again. Um, so, yeah, look, is, is he setting the world on fire? I don't know. I, I Actually, when you go back and look at it, I think he's had a better year than most people give him credit for. Okay, so I want to ask you a Biden question then, which we weren't really going to talk about. It wasn't on our agenda. But there is this kind of idea out there Uh, pushed by certain of his supporters that what you really have is a communications problem. You know, Biden's not speaking directly to Americans. He's not um, he's not talking to reporters very much that they're not sort of championing their their big uh, their big accomplishments. You know, the problem is like it's it's not one of substance. It's one of messaging. Yeah. Every fucking elected official and politician in the course of human history who has had bad, <laughs> bad poll numbers says it's a messaging problem. It's not that we're not doing a really good job. So, we right. are, so it's a, it's we, a conventional just, excuse, but is it, is it legitimate in this case? Um, I, I think some of it is and some of it isn't. So right. it, okay. it is in the sense that, yes, they don't. he's not a gifted communicator. He never has been. And on top of that, he's a pretty – I had breakfast with a – member of the House this morning, not, not my brother-in-law, um, who will go unnamed, but liberal Democrat who said Biden just seems feeble when he talks to him in person. Yeah. Um, so I think part of it is, 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 is age, but part of it, he was never a great orator or communicator. Um, and then part of it also is we live in a world where everyone is poised to rip everything to shreds at the first possible minute. Um, and we live in a world that is so problematic in some ways that, that the president of the United States can't just, by the virtue of their own existence, 
solve the problems. And when people say, oh, I voted for so-and-so, they promised everything would be better, and it still sucks, um, then they don't like them. So the other big news this weekend was the new var variant, Omicron. Um, terrible name, Omicron, I think. Yeah, it's also hard because I keep wanting to say Omnicron. Yeah, I also I had to look up like four times how to pronounce it because I just felt wrong, but Omicron. So we're obviously not epidemiologists. We have no insight into whether this thing is going to be truly dangerous or not. But um, how did it strike you? Just, you know, you're responsible for this company, for a lot of other investments, for your family, of course. Um, like, were you alarmed? Not were really. You, I mean, maybe, maybe I should be, but, but I'll tell you a few things. One is, at the moment, from what I have read, and I'm not reading about this obsessively, but, right. but enough, if you have the, the vaccines and if you have the booster, they think you will probably be okay. Right. It doesn't mean you, you won't get sick or feel bad for a couple of days, but you'll be okay. Um, we all get colds and sick, and, and that doesn't shut down the world. So um, for the vaccinated world, it's probably okay. Um, and then from a why well, I certainly want to, wouldn't want to live through another quarantine, um, you know, in, in, in some ways, the pandemic wasn't all bad from like a, a pure business perspective either. Um, so the problem to me for Omicron seems to be one huge percentage of the world would like to be vaccinated, but isn't yet. And it's especially scary for them Two, all the people in the U.S. who choose not to be vaccinated. I guess that's your right to choose that. But you're just putting yourself at more risk yet again. Um, and then third, yeah, much in the same way that if you said to me, well, Trump's definitely coming back and I would become like <laughs> depressed about that again. Right. You know, I, I, I think that um, if I had to really start thinking about what it would be like to sort of redo the pandemic and the quarantine, that that would be pretty depressing. But in terms of I did have visions of that, not not based on any uh, like particular fact, but there is a you know, there's a there's a kind of morbid excitement that went on over the weekend, I felt in the in the sort of Twitter sphere, you know, everybody kind of like getting their super dismal you know, the end is near kind of That's like vibe out there. Stay away from social media. I know, I know. It's terrible. And and it, it I don't know. It, 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 uh, but, but again, it's a, you know, it's an inequality question in the sense of, no, everyone who works for me, as far as I know, and I believe everyone's provided records, is fully vaccinated. And we are saying, tell everyone you have to get the booster shot as well, right? All the startups that I have invested in, I guarantee you all the founders are fully vaccinated and getting booster shots and probably won't be all that implicated or Im impacted by Omicron one way or the other. Most of the stuff I think you said my, Omicron just now. Did I, yeah. I think you did. Most of the stuff in my life is probably not going to be dramatically impacted by Omicron one way or the other. Um, but it speaks to two problems. One, you know, small number of people have a tremendous amount of privilege and most people, a lot of people don't have anything. And two, um, even when a place like the U.S. with all of this privilege you know, we, we still can't even agree on basic stuff. Now, speaking of privilege, um, I, I know you just read the, the top part of the article, but I want to mention it in part because I think it's a, 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 pretty, uh, a pretty outstanding piece of journalism that's in The New Yorker this week about um, immigration into Europe and the role that Libya plays um, in basically stopping it and, and rounding up a lot of, of, a lot of potential migrants into Europe. 
and putting them in these horrific prisons. And what's interesting about the story by Ian Urbina is that it looks at the culpability of, of the EU and of Italy in basically using the Libyan government to, to uh, police uh, migrants and ultimately to, to, to cause this kind of real hardship. Um, especially in, the, in this prison. Uh, the, the piece is very dramatic and includes um, the, the writer who's there with, with a bunch of other um, advocates um, and researchers is, is arrested and held in captivity for six days himself, not treated nearly as poorly as, as a lot of the, the migrants are, but, but still a pretty scary experience. Yeah. Um, so there's, a, there's this takeaway for me from that story, which is, wow, this is like not only is this a terrible problem and, and an incredibly difficult um, issue for, you know, for people, for humankind, but um, it's, it's going to get a lot worse, it feels like, as the disparity between um, the West and the East, or not the West and the East, but, but the, I guess it's really the North and the South, uh, Europe and, and the continent of Africa, um, the, the need for these people to escape the, the circumstances there and just seems overwhelming. Um, and yet the accommodations to them in Europe are, are simply not there, um, nor are they in, in our country for, for people in, in Latin America. Um, where are you on, on the sort of like the problem of immigration and, and how, how we can reach a sort of equitable solution yeah. to it? And I'm just curious, just reading this story, it just made me feel hopeless, but I was yeah, wondering. Yeah, I mean, uh, look, that's a few things. One is I'm a first-generation American and, and my family, not only immigrants, we came here from refugee camps after World War II. So um, I certainly uh, am very, very sympathetic to uh, people who are trying to get into this country or trying to leave whatever country they're in for a better life. Number two, I, I don't think that um, any country can just become this open home for all potential refugees and people needing amnesty and everything else. It's just no one quite has the infrastructure to really do that. And applaud the, the parts of Europe that really tried, like Andrea Merkel and, and, and Germany. I do favor a, a lot of immigration, and I would have much higher quotas for things like amnesty and, and, and things like that. But at the same time, um, I wouldn't say we should abolish ICE, and I wouldn't say that we should you know, uh, just end all quotas entirely. Um, you have to have some control over your borders. So then I get to the question of, okay, if some countries in the world are gonna work generally pretty well and, and some are not, what do you do about it? What do you do about the countries that um, don't have access to uh, health care, don't have access to enough food, to basic shelter or jobs or education, or what are they going to do when climate change really, really hits um, and it's even more impossible to live you know, in whatever part of the world they're in? Um, look, so those are all true, and those are all very big problems. At the same time, um, over the weekend, I read a book by a guy named Rutger uh, Bergman called Humankind. I was you just really picked it up. How, right did, how did you get this book, by I the was, way? I was in the Oblong Bookshop in Millerton, New York. I love that bookshop. That's a great, great one. bookstore. Yeah. And I went there. Uh, You're on your way to see Amber and Tom. We were on our way to see Amber and Tom. Harper and Abby wanted to stop at this like antique store. Lyle and I opted for the bookstore. <laughs> he got a couple of books. Uh, I picked out a couple of Hanukkah presents for the kids. And then saw this book sitting there. And it just, I, mean, I have to say, I, I really am someone that, that often buys the book based on the cover. Um, it just kind of appealed to me. Well, you got to look at the cover. It's very, just bright and cheerful. And, but the idea was... A it, hopeful history. Yeah, it's a hopeful history of humankind. And you know, he makes the point that I think is worth acknowledging when we talk about what you were saying before, which is 
yes, uh, there's a lot of problems in this world. There's no question about it. But um, as Steven Pinker and others have pointed out, from a statistical standpoint, we are actually in the best shape the world has ever been by a lot, right, in terms of infant mortality or life expectancy or literacy or people living in extreme poverty or basic access to medical care and everything else. Um, you know, we've made exponential gains in the past 50 to 100 years. Um, so, you know, we're in this weird dynamic where the world is technically better than it's ever been and feels worse than it ever has, or at least worse than it has in a, in a probably since a world war or something like that. So, you know, um, look, and maybe the reason why it's getting better is in part because we're asking questions like this and we're asking what happens to people in countries who don't have access to vaccines or, or won't be able to mitigate the impact of climate change or something else. So maybe this is exactly what it takes. But I also think there's some cognitive dissonance between how we feel, especially in, in this country, where um, even though we have so much, we're still human beings, which means we're still very apt to feel sorry for ourselves. Um, but at the same time, where things actually stand. So Rutger Bergman, does he work his way around to, I mean, what is, so if, if we're hopeful and, and, we, and we depend on sort of human humankind's better instincts, what does that actually mean in practice? Like yeah, how, so he basically takes the sort of Hobbes first or so dynamic and debate that has existed for however long now, hundreds of years. Um, Hobbes, for, for those of you who, who don't recall this from philosophy class, uh, basically believed that life was sort of short, brutish, nasty, and everyone's lying. You have to get whatever you can whenever you can. Um, very much actually a Trumpian theory of the world, almost exactly. Sure. Uh, Rousseau was much more of a people are intrinsically good, they're good upon birth, and then they get corrupted as they become members of society because of all the institutions that we have created are inherently corrupting and flawed. Bregman comes out much more on the side of Rousseau, and I think he agrees that people are intrinsically good. The, the point he makes in the book that made it both worthwhile and, quite frankly, a pretty easy read, I think it was like 400 pages, and I you know, read it really quickly. Um, Did you read it in one day? Uh, no, I think I started it Friday night and finished it Sunday night, so about 40 hours. But the point he made was all evidence shows actually that when we are friendly, when we are compassionate, when we work together, when we are generous, when we share, the actual tangible results for all of us are significantly better um, than when we look at everything as a zero-sum game and are just fighting each other for every scrap of, of food and clothing and money and everything else. And that, you know, his point is society really advances when there is a spirit of cooperation and discovery and partnership. And when we're all just walling ourselves off from each other, um, society, you know, suffers as a result. And so, you know, if, if you look at society today, there's a lot to like, right? There's a lot to point to about how people, you know, do end up, uh, despite what we read on Twitter or here in the media, everything else, still trying to help each other and be decent and work together. Like he even brought up the, the Kitty Genovese murder, you know, back in 1978. Was it 78? Maybe it was later. No, no, no. It was in the, is, no, I think it was in the 50s is, no. or 60s. Kitty right. Genovese? Whenever. I'm we'll, going to we'll look it up because we have this anyway, thing called Google This here. woman named Kitty Genovese was murdered in Queens. Um, 1964. 1964. She was stabbed to death. But the, the scandal is 38 different people, apparently. It has been debunked, though, you know. Right. right. That's the, so okay. 30 That's people, originally okay. the scandal was right. 38 people heard it, and no one acted on it. Had one person just bothered to call the police, um, she would have been saved. And then he kind of debunks that, um, in part in saying that most of the 38 actually either didn't hear it or 
you know, assume someone else was calling. They, they didn't kind of, out of maliciousness, choose not to help her. Um, but but his broader point was like, e- even for every Kitty Genovese, to the extent that any of that, you know, feeling of indifference is true, there's a hundred examples of people stepping up to um, to help each other. In fact, you know, when we were driving home from uh, our friend's house on Friday night, it was snowing really hard uh, in where they were in Connecticut and then kind of upstate to where we were. And there was a car stopped on the road, and it had its, flat, its blinkers on, and we didn't stop. And, I, and Harper and I kind of discussed it, and it was snowing really hard, and it was late, and it was pitch black, and the kids were in the back seat, and we just wanted to get home safely, and we did. Um, but I have to tell you, I, I felt badly about it when we did it, and then as I read this book over the course of the weekend, um, I felt even worse. Now, did those people likely have a cell phone that had a reception? Yes. So right. I'm sure they are fine. They weren't but on fire. They weren't. On fi- the car wasn't on fire. <laughs> right. But nonetheless, the point is. I know that feeling really well, though. Like that, yeah. uh, that that feeling where you pass a distressing scene of some kind, and you you get that sort of it's not fight or flight exactly, but there's that that kind of either or choice, and you clock it, and you choose, you know. Yeah, we made the wrong choice. You made the wrong choice. Yeah, we did. Right, uh, and, and it's just good to keep that in your mind, right? So the next time. You're like, because it's, it's, I mean, I can actually see it on your face right now. It's still bothering you. So, like, next time you're not going to drive past it. Right. But the, the value of the book, I think, is, one, it's a little affirming. So you're reading that New Yorker piece. You're looking at Twitter. You're reading about Omnicom. Om, Omnicrom. There's a company called Omnicom, and this is Omicron, and that totally it's confuses Omicron. me. Omicron. 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 So, and everything feels terrible and hopeless and negative. Um and the Bregman, the, the Bergman book, sorry, Bregman's the third baseman for the Astros. The the, the Bergman book is... Um, <laughs> His name isn't Rutger, though. A, a good... Well, let's call him Rutger. Actually, he's Alex, and he is the, maybe the only current Jewish player in Major, in major League Baseball. Really? Yeah. Um, no, he's on the Astros, and he was part of the whole cheating scandal, so maybe he's not the greatest guy ever, but he's one of ours. Um, <laughs> the thing I like about you, Bradley, is that you just you just remember things like that. Like, if you were going to talk about a, a Houston Astro, you're just like, that's right there. Well, he's the only one. No, no, I don't mean Jewish. I just mean that they cheated. Oh, well, yeah, because the thing is, my, my instinct would be like— Don't you kind of think they all cheat? Um, no. Yes. I think, that's why I think steroids should be legal, actually. But I'll, so, steroids. Yeah, so Lyle okay. and I—we're now all over the fucking place. But Lyle and I, there's a new Disney show called Hawkeye. So Lyle's wildly into Marvel, and I watch all of it with him, and I like it too. And Hawkeye is this uh, archer— Right. Who, um, you know, they made a show. Jeremy Renner plays Hawkeye, and then there's a protege, one of Kate Bishop, who's played by I think Hallie Steinfeld is the actress's name. Yeah. Um, but in the show, she's Jewish because Lyle and I saw a mezuzah uh-huh. at their house, and we got so excited. We're like, "Wow, a Jewish superhero! <laughs> this is amazing!" Um, and then it's funny, but like either way, in this whole like, is it good for the Jews or bad for the Jews? You know, Hawkeye on Wednesday, good for the Jews. Alex Bregman is part of the cheating scandal. Bad for, for the Jews. Jews. Bad for the Jews. So anyway. God, but, are you going to be able to bring it back around to Rutger Bergman I'm now? I'm trying to remember what gonna, I was even I know, talking about. Right? But yes, I, I, I think I can, which is fundamentally, um, if you're willing to accept that people actually are decent and you're willing to be a little more open and a little more trusting and a little more vulnerable with people, uh, generally speaking, they will pay you back in kind. You will have better relationships. You will have a better life. You will be happier, um, and, and I think that it's it's generally good wisdom to live by. So, where does that leave you as a political strategist? With, you know, you are you are a sharp elbowed guy, or can be. It's not that you always are, but that you have that as a, 
you know you're 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 willing to get into fights you're willing to to uh be in conflict with people in a public way so what does reading a book like that does that make you question some of that behavior do you well it did make me question some of my underlying assumptions on mobile voting right so because the the thesis for mobile voting is Every policy output is shaped by political input, right? And every politician cares solely about getting reelected, right? And therefore, if you shape the political inputs so that the policies you want are are achieved by them doing uh, what's in their own self interest, you will win. And if you don't, you will lose. I still believe that to be true. However, if Bregman is Bergman is right. Bergman. Now I can't. You know, we'll see how well he plays third base. Uh, if Bergman is right, <laughs> he's Dutch. He's probably a terrible baseball player. Uh, you know, they had a. Oh, they did have an Olympic team. An Olympic right. team. Yeah. Oh my God, we're going off. Yeah, we're going down the rabbit hole now. But so, if Bergman's right, that people are intrinsically good and positive, then maybe I'm wrong. Maybe uh, politicians are motivated by more than just re-election, uh, and maybe uh, as a result. Me assuming that that you can always manipulate them doing what you want as long as they will genuinely believe that you can impact the their next election. Um, maybe that's not true, right? Um, although he then goes on in the book to kind of talk about democracy and all the problems with it, and it kind of endorses this concept of a direct democracy where people could um, kind of via referendum technology, whatever it is, you know, weigh in uh, in a direct way, participatory, you know, budgeting or whatever else, as opposed to the indirect representation system we have right now. So uh, I'm actually going to reach out to him. I don't know if he'll write back or not, but I'll track down his email. I'm um, curious to see what he says about mobile voting. But um, look, I, you know, there's no way he'd be against mobile voting. I mean, mobile voting is at root just like getting more people into the process. Yeah, he wouldn't be against I mean, it. But I think what he might say is, your underlying assumption that every politician is solely motivated by re-election is untrue. And that, that these are generally, like all human beings, good people who want to help, and they're complicated, and they have more than one motivation for things, but you are being intrinsically unfair. Yeah, but I still think, look, I, I, I don't think that because politicians are motivated by their self-interest and their need to get re-elected necessarily leads them to bad outcomes or to act in bad ways, it means that they have to be really in tune with what the people they are representing want. Now, the problem is, is that the, the because as you've pointed out many times, that so few people vote in the, particularly in the primaries, but because there's so little, that they're actually just representing a very yeah, too small but, but group. Yeah, but they're doing, so there are times where you know better, right? So right. The, the two examples we like to give a lot in terms of mobile voting would be, one, assault weapons, and two, right. when, uh, kind of the left drove Amazon out of New York City. Right. Yeah, in both cases, the politician is accurately interpreting the will of the people who vote in his or her primary. Which is their job, right? No. It's their not? job, I would argue, is to represent their district, the roughly seven, let's say you're a member, a member of the House, but any right. district, right? Your job is to represent the totality of the people who live there and what you honestly believe is best for them, right. even if that goes against the will of the people who are the most influential. So no, they're not doing their job, they are behaving rationally, but I'll tell you this morning I had breakfast again with this prominent member of the House and he was telling me the story about his, uh, he's the chairman of the major committee, he was telling me about the ranking member who's a good friend of his and was saying that the guy had told him the night before January 6th, I'm gonna vote for impeachment. Um, And then the next morning before the riots even happened, called and said, you know, I talked to my political team and they said, if I do, it's, it's the last vote I'll ever take in Congress. 
Um, and even after the storming of the Capitol, he still voted against impeachment because at the end of the day, this person, and, and by the way, the guy I was talking to likes him a lot. He wasn't even really being critical. He was just being realistic of saying, here's someone who is reasonable, thoughtful, smart, hardworking, you know, wants to do good, and at the same time, you know, still refused to vote uh, for impeachment um, simply because, you know, it, it would hurt him in his next primary. So I still think you have to assume that all political decisions are made solely on the basis of re-election and nothing else. But, but you know, but Bergman's book at least caused me to question that uh, a little bit. And look, I, you know, I am putting so much time and money into mobile voting based on that my core assumptions are right. If my core assumptions are wrong, what a fucking waste this would all be. So, <laughs> but I, they're not I, wrong. I they're not wrong. I uh, mean, I don't think so. But I don't think it's bad to challenge. But, but them no, sometimes. no, it's not bad to challenge it. But I think, I think the it's it's not even. I feel like these two things can be held together at the same time. Like, I mean, I think that the the optimistic outlook that that um, that Bergman has it, it's it's essential certainly for operating within your within your community and stuff but but there is a, there is a space I think for real conflict in politics that's not all bad that 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 even even if I mean it, it's sort of like what people I feel like a lot of times people get so upset about like all oh, the polarization in in the you know in the world and everything but if you go out to like you know I, I spent a lot of time in Western New York which is like Trump country yeah and it's all Trump voters and stuff, but it, people weren't like angry, spitting mad all the time. It wasn't like unpleasant to be around people. It wasn't like the cauldron Most of people are interested in their lives, their families, their health, right. their jobs, their hobbies. They don't give a shit about politics one way or the other. And I think I think Bregman, Bergman's right. It, it most people I think are generally in, intrinsically kind of positive and good. The point he makes, because you say, okay, fine, then what about concentration camps? What about genocide? What about all these terrible things? What about what about the prisons it, in Libya? Yeah, the Libya prisons that you mentioned in, in this New Yorker article. He would say it's because human beings are too sociable in a way. We are, if we believe that we're doing something we're supposed to do, um, even if we can just kind of convince ourselves it's right, it is much easier to go along with whatever it is. And for the same things that allowed us to cooperate right so he was making the case that like um what's it called the the what was the the, the human species from kind of northern europe that that went that's that went starts with an end now i can't believe i can't remember this that that ultimately went extinct it was like uh oh, not cro magnum but something like that. there are seven i love that there were seven human species so anyway he was making the case that this particular species which i'm not gonna feel stupid when human hugo pulls up the name i couldn't remember it neanderthals neanderthals right um, that was kind of a neanderthal moment of yours right there it, i think i'm having a few of those today. uh <laughs> both um were not only more physically powerful than we are but much smarter too however what they didn't have was that kind of sociability cooperative gene, which meant that even though they were individually, you know, kind of superior in many ways to, to, to how we are, um, our particular species of those seven are the ones that won out, because even if we weren't as good individually, collectively, we were always much better. And by being able to cooperate and work together, that's what produced success. But that same cooperation and sociability can also lead people to do really terrible things um, under the belief that either it's the right thing to do or the belief that you know it's the best thing for them to do. Um, on the subject of optimism, we're gonna we're gonna do one of these sort of crazy left turns, but we're gonna try to link it to the conversation yep. a little bit. But this morning, uh, I'm a, I'm not on the political strategist chat uh, text group with with Bradley, but I am on another text group with him, which is like his sports. 
uh, some of them, some overlap there, actually. Some there, people there are, the there are group, a few yeah. people, I think only, there's two people on both, or three, I guess, includes me. And, um, yeah, th- and it's more of a so basketball related. It's mostly basketball, but but there was a lot of baseball this morning Today. because, and we're gonna we're yeah. gonna we're gonna allow Bradley to talk about sports um, because it's a big day for the New York Mets. They've made a gigantic signing, Max Scherzer, three years for 140 million dollars. But you are not happy about this. I'm not unhappy, but here's okay. what I'm not willing to do. Okay. I am every year. I'm like Lucy in the football. Right, right. Like the Mets. One of the, I think I posted that on the chat too, pro- right? That probably. Was, I think yeah. Howard did earlier. The, this the Mets start off the season well. I get really excited. I go to game after game after game. I'm totally into it, and then by July they fall apart, and by you know September they're an afterthought. Uh, that happens every single year, and yet every year in the off season, when the Mets make a trade or they sign someone, they do something that seems po- uh, positive and optimistic. I get all really excited. I go all in, and I'm so happy about it. And it just finally hit me to like, you know what, fucking enough already, right? Like, yes, Max Scherzer's a great pitcher. Um, he's won three Cy Young Awards. You know, hopefully he'll win another one as a Matt. Um, he's yes, got a great mentality for New York. He, he has a great mentality. He's great at everything, but he is 38. He'll be 38 in July. Right. And couldn't pitch in the playoffs because his arm was too tired. So right. he, he's older. And so, if, you know, on our little text chain there, it was like, wow, imagine DeGrom and Scherzer, the first top two pitchers. Like, it's going to be incredible. DeGrom's healthy like two months a year, right? And, yeah. like, the reality is this is the fucking Mets. So odds are <laughs> Scherzer will get hurt. DeGrom will get hurt. Like, everything that can Starling go Starling Marte. Will. They got yeah, a couple of guys they never they really heard of. They got a couple of guys. But, like, you know, look, there'd be, no one would be happier than me if the Mets if were, you're wrong. were good this year and be wrong. But I am so sick of getting my hopes up all of the time and having them dashed by this sort of cursed, dysfunctional franchise. And, yes, maybe Steve Cohen will eventually turn things around. So far, Scherzer signing notwithstanding, he's been a fucking disaster, just like the rest of them. Oh, Bradley, I don't want to, I don't, especially since you were so inspired by that Rutger Bergman really book, t- and then you turn on the downwards. Mets like that, I feel, I, I feel bad, because I, I want you to feel hope and optimism about I, the Mets. I, I feel it a little bit, and I don't even like the Mets. Yeah, well, it's easy to feel it when, when you're emotionally neutral about it, right? <laughs> I am so emotionally caught up in this thing. And look, I, I certainly hope I'm wrong, and, and but if nothing else, for the first few months of the season, when the Mets are competitive next year, before they fall out of contention like they always do, and when I'm watching multiple games a week, I will enjoy watch, watching Max Scherzer pitch. I will enjoy going to City Field and seeing him pitch live. I just feel like I know better than to get too excited about it. All right. Well, that's, uh, that wraps it up for this week. Uh, we'll be back on Thursday. Uh, Bradley, thanks so much. All right. Thanks, you. 